In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, welcome to this second uh lecture installment in our series related to uh the topic of imana i think that with what we presented until now uh it should have become clear what the topic of imana is what we tried to do a little bit in the last time that we met was to try to present not necessarily any arguments uh, for the validity of the imama, all what we were trying to do in the last time was to define what we mean by imama. What is this understanding, especially in the Shia school of thought, about what an imam is? Who is an imam? And we compared between the two big schools of thought in Islam, saying how in the Sunni school the role of the imam is understood, and how the role of the Imam is understood in the Shia school of thought. We want to build on what we have presented until now, this time by looking at the topic of the necessity of the Imam. So here, what we presented in the past was the notion of Imam in general. What we want to do this time is to concentrate on why do we say what we presented last time seemed to imply, and we explicitly said it, in the Shia school of thought, we believe that the role of the Imam is necessary. So why do we say that Imam is necessary? In what sense is it necessary? What's the argument to show that the role of the Imam or Imam in general is necessary? Why is it necessary? So generally speaking, the, the, the structure of the, the, the lesson is that we have a few remarks that we want to get out of the way. They have to do with this big topic of imama in general. We gave some last time. We want to add a few more because I think they're very relevant and important to this topic. And then we'll get into this notion of uh, the necessity of the imama by understanding the context against which this topic needs to be understood. So the preliminary remarks uh, I think that are very important to keep in mind uh, really has to do with the fact, as we said, that there is perhaps no other topic in Islam that has been researched to the point that imama has been researched and about which there has been so much written and so much said and which, of course, has caused so much controversy and so much discord and so much disunity, and so much disagreement in Islam as the topic of imam, and at times with disastrous consequences. So if we keep this in mind, and we talked a little bit about this in the last time, if we keep all of this in mind, then there's an objection that we are faced with. The objection is basically can take two big forms. One form of the objection, one, one uh, format or one version of the objection is basically to say that why do we bother 
with a topic that has basically only led to this type of problem and discord and, and disagreement, isn't this a turnoff for someone who's trying to understand this religion? <clears throat> so this applies even more to someone who is new to our faith, new to our religion, someone who's just entering, or someone, so this could be someone who has, let's say, just converted, or someone who has now just recently been interested in the topic of religion. And so they start studying Islam, they start studying theology, they start studying <clears throat> the different Islamic fields, and one of them, of course, is theology. And sooner or later, they are going to be faced with this, they are going to be faced with this topic, the topic of Imam. And you also have people, so you have people who are the, uh, you know, newly, people newly entering into Islam, people who are just being exposed to the Islamic teachings, and sooner or later, all of these people are going to be faced with this big controversial topic of, uh, the big controversial topic of Imam. So in other words, this topic is basically a turnoff. People, instead of concentrating on religion and the teachings of Islam, are going to be distracted and they're going to focus solely on the aspect of Islam that is basically the disagreement and the discord and the controversy surrounding the imamah. And they are turned off from religion altogether because they... Uh, basically get distracted with this topic instead of concentrating on Islam itself. Okay, so what's the answer to this objection? The first answer, and there's a few answers that we can give here. The first answer is, if we want to study this topic, we have to start by committing to studying it in the most objective way possible. We want to get to the bottom, we want to get to the truth. And someone who wants to get to the truth should not really be bothered by the controversy so much as trying to reach the truth. What I want to understand is what really happened? What am I supposed to really believe in? Really, ultimately, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not really looking for anything else. And there may or may not have been controversy about the topic in history. It should not deter me from trying to find the truth about a topic that is important. And we're going to come back to its importance in a second. The second answer that we can give to this is that we are extremely confident in our religion, extremely confident in our faith, in this religion, in its teachings, in its beauty, in its attractiveness to anyone who actually wants to study it objectively. I'm not afraid as a Muslim to present the controversies and the disagreements related to this topic because I'm not thinking that this religion is so weak and so fragile and so frail, so vulnerable, that if you were exposed to one controversy, one difference of opinion about one topic, then suddenly you're going to think that your entire uh, belief system, your entire faith in this religion has been shattered. It's not like this at all. Islam is an incredibly complex and beautiful system, extremely nuanced, sophisticated, meticulous. And yes, there are parts of Islam about which there is not that much consensus, that there are disagreements and that there are different schools of thought that have come out of it. 
It doesn't mean that I completely let go of the entire religion because one part of it seems to have been controversial in the past or continues to be today. I have to put the controversy aside and get to the bottom of it for myself. The third answer that we have to this is that we keep saying, we've said this a few times already, we're saying that this is considered one of the topics that have been the most discussed, the most researched. There is so much that has been written about it, so much that continues to be written and researched about it. This, what it should tell you is that this is an extremely important topic. So instead of saying that I'm going to be someone who is going to be discouraged from looking into this because of how much controversy there is around it, I should actually say, this is perhaps something of a very big importance. And so I have to treat it as something important and actually get to the bottom of it, make up my own mind, know where I stand, what my position is with regards to this topic, and not be deterred simply because, you know, there's controversy around it. Controversy or not, I cannot pretend that this topic did not exist and I can just ignore it and neglect it and move on because it was controversial. I need to know where I stand with regards to this topic if it is really this important. Or if I reach the conclusion that this is actually not that much of a, uh, an important topic, then that's fine. But I have to do my research in order to reach that conclusion. Okay, so no matter how you look at it, you cannot say that simply because it may look like it's a turnoff for someone entering this religion to see how much controversy a topic has caused. Simply because of this, I'm going to neglect and put it aside and not really bother researching it. That's one version of the objection. The second version of the same objection is that the topic of imame has led to, as we said, disagreement and in fact disunity in Islam. And I don't need to spend a lot of time, this could be a, an independent uh, <clears throat> lecture or series of lectures on how Islam views unity and the importance of unity in Islam. Unity is considered sacred in Islam. And unity in the sense that wherever there is common ground between human beings, wherever there is common ground between people of the same faith, of people who have certain commonalities in their faith. And that's why it says, for instance, to the Christians, let us agree on the things that we agree on. And let's come together on those things. We may disagree on other things, but there is a common ground on which we all agree. Let's agree that we're all in agreement on this. Let's not create discord where there is none. Let's not create disunity where there is none. Okay, and then when you look within Islam itself, of course, Islam has put barriers in place so that it forces people to belong to the same community, to the same ummah of Muslims for all sorts of reasons. And we're not going to talk about that now. So Islam considers unity a sacred thing. So I'm not going to discuss that. That's a given. That part should be understood by everyone. So we're not arguing that Islam says unity is good or bad. Unity is good, period. Okay? That said, unity does not mean that I'm going to unite at the expense of the truth. So we're going to forget about the truth, we're going to ignore the truth just so that we unite. That doesn't work in Islam. The main point is to find the truth. Your entire belief system is about finding the truth and believing in it and building your life around it. So if the truth is something, then that's the truth. That's it. You have to recognize it. Of course, you have to 
behave in accordance with that truth, but that truth remains that truth and you have to get to it. You have to look it up. You have to reach your own conclusion about it. So I'm not going to let go of the truth just because it may, may cause disunity. That's one. Two, if I am truly objective, if I'm really rational and logical and objective and neutral in the way in a, that I'm doing my research, then why should it lead to something like hatred? And why should it lead to violence? And why should it lead to disagreement to the extent that, you know, there are people who are at war with others and killing others and, you know, the disasters that we see in history. That means that there, there is maybe more at stake and there are people who are not coming with the right attitude of I'm only doing this to find the truth and to live my life according to the truth. Now there is another layer being introduced here that is causing everything else. Otherwise, if two people disagree, let's say about chemistry or biology, or are they going to reach a, con a conclusion if both of them can't reach a, uh, the same outcome? Is the outcome, is the conclusion of that disagreement that one is going to be forcing the other? No, of course not. That if, that, if we reach that, it means that we are no longer working within an objective, neutral, scientific, logical environment that there's a lot more at play here. And what we want is simply to be in a neutral state so that we research the truth based on reason, based on logic in a calm, respectful manner. Okay, that's the second uh, uh, point to, uh, as an answer to this. The third point is that if I'm going to find anyone with whom I think that there should be a strategic alliance, a collaboration, a partnership that should be created between me and them. This does not mean that I'm going to have to find someone that is going to agree with every article of faith and every element of belief that I have in my worldview and in my ideology. In fact, that may actually be impossible. So where do you draw the line? Where are you going to say, I'm going to agree and work with someone and create an alliance and feel like we have a unit where we work together and collaborate together if there are parts on which we disagree? Okay, so if I have a certain belief about something and you have a different belief about that thing, does it mean that it's just a dead end that we can never work together? No. And this is where you have to be in life and you have to be smart and you have to be uh, complex in your thinking and not look only at things in a, from one dimension. You have to look at the entire situation and in certain cases it's okay to build that strategic alliance. Of course you're going to be able to create a unity and work as a community even with people with whom you may disagree. It all depends on what is the disagreement. And despite the disagreement, can we actually still work together on other things where we have common ground and we agree or not? And if we do that, it doesn't mean that, you know, there is absolutely no more truth and we forget the truth. I have my truth and you may have yours and we're coming together to work on this project, on this initiative, on this collaboration together because there is common ground between us here. And that's fine and that's normal. And Islam is all for that. Okay? And then... You know, the, the, the last point that we can say here is, despite all of the theory and despite all of the, you know, uh, all the uh, more abstract notions that we're presenting right now, 
if you actually wanted a role model to follow, then there is no better role model than to look at the life of Imam Ali as he went through his life with regards to the difficulties and the disagreements that he faced in his time. I don't think anyone who studies the life of Imam Ali would say that this is someone who was willing, let's say, to compromise on the truth. This was someone who was extremely vocal, extremely, it was impossible to be more uh, solid in his belief in knowing what the truth was and in exposing the truth and explaining the truth to the people in his time. Everybody knew where he stood. He made it clear. He did not mince his words. He did not create false diplomacy. In fact, he was known for the exact opposite. So how could someone like him still be able to maintain his relationships and to work in that kind of community where there was so much ideological and worldview disagreement between him and others? It's because he knows that if I have my truth and I'm able to know and distinguish between truth and falsehood, and I have my own conclusions, this does not necessarily mean that I am automatically at war with everybody else. That, there, that this disagreement is automatically going to cause discord. No one can look, despite the fact that Imam Ali salam was very clearly in a situation of huge disagreement with, let's say, people like Abu Bakr and Umar. Very clearly, anyone who goes through history will see this. The things that they would say to themselves, to the, each other, and everybody knew this at that time. Very clear. And yet, at the same time, no one can go back in history and look at the behavior of Imam Ali salam and say that he was ever the cause of disunity, that he was the cause of discord. Regardless of the fact that there were enemies and that there were people who were, with whom he had huge disagreements, Yet he behaved in a way that he never became the reason why there is a discord or disagreement. And there is a role model in us for us to follow in Imam Ali Ali's behavior because none, none of us is going to have the truth that Imam Ali Ali Salam had and none of us is going to face the difficulties that he had. And yet he was still able to maintain that balance between following the truth and making sure, so on the one side, knowing what the truth is and making sure that everybody understood it, while at the same time, not going so far as to cause disagreement and disunity in the Islamic world, for instance. Okay, so these were the preliminary remarks that we wanted to say quickly before we jump into our topic for today. So what is the topic? The topic is that now that we understand what the notion of imama is, we want to understand what is the main difference between the two schools of thought in Islam about this notion of Imam. What is the main difference? And what we have until now, what we've said until now, is going to allow us to understand where the two schools of thought are going to go in separate paths. So you're going to have the Sunni school who will say the following. They'll say, when the Holy Prophet lived in this world, he is the one who held the reins. And we read the verses of the Quran and we clearly established that the Holy Prophet was the person to be followed in religious matters as well as all other matters in this world. Because his religion is a universal, eternal religion. We made that very clear. 
and all Muslims are in agreement on this. Where the disagreement occurs is when the Holy Prophet departs from this world, leaves this world. The Sunni school of thought will say that the Holy Prophet had taught everything he had to teach to the Islamic world, to the Muslims, to the point where they had developed and matured so much that they could now take those teachings from the Holy Prophet that we refer to as Islam, and they could decide for themselves how they are going to run their own affairs. Okay? So the Holy Prophet leaves this world. He doesn't say you have to rule yourselves in this way or that, that you have to appoint so-and-so as your leader. None of that. The Holy Prophet is simply going to pass away and basically leave it to the Muslims to decide how they are going to run their own affairs, to decide between themselves what they think makes most sense based on their own circumstances. They have been given all the tools, everything they need to be able to run their own world and their own affairs from every angle by themselves. Okay, so that's one school of thought. The other school of thought, the Shia school of thought, I don't want to say what the Shia really believe. I'm going to say that a little bit later. The majority of the Sunnis think, and a lot of Shia think, that what the Shia believe is that, no, when the Holy Prophet's time was coming, and he knew that he was soon going to pass away, he appointed someone that he thought would be the best ruler over the Islamic Ummah after him, and that was Imam Ali alayhi salam. Okay, his son-in-law, his cousin, the person that he had raised, and the person that he had taught, and so he chose him as the ruler after him. This is what the majority of the Sunnis think the Shia believe, and a lot of the Shia actually think that this is what they are supposed to believe as a Shia, that the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali السلام, as a ruler after him, as a Khalifa after him. Okay, so now the question is, in the Sunni school of thought, and I'm going to come back to the Shia and what they really believe in a second after we finish this. So in the Sunni school of thought, this is where the question arises. What is the proper mechanism? What is the proper way for people to reach a conclusion about how they are supposed to rule themselves? Who is supposed to rule them? What type of government they're supposed to have? What's the proper mechanism for this? If they say that Islam is complete and all the tools have been given, so how does it work exactly? If we look at the history and if we look at the manner in which things actually unfolded, what actually happened? And here there are, you know, I wrote here, there are at least three theories. There's more than three theories. So let's look at actually what happened after the passing away of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet passes away, as we said, the Sunnis say that he did not appoint anyone. So the claim is that those, there's two theories here, either the majority of the people, that's one theory, or those who are very important, those who are the most influential, the political leaders, the tribal leaders, the family leaders, those are the ones who chose Abu Bakr as the Khalifa of the Islamic world, okay? So that's one mechanism to get to the ruler. That's one way to know in Islam, as they say, to reach who should rule. The majority get together and they decide, or the important people get together and they decide for everyone who should rule and how they should rule. And that's fine. 
Okay, so that's one. And then what happened? So Abu Bakr was in power for about 27 months. Okay, two years and some. And then he got ill, he got sick, and he passes away. Right before passing away, in his will, in his testament, he appoints the person who is going to be the Khalifa after him. He says, the person who is going to be Khalifa after me when I pass away is going to be Umar ibn al-Khattab. Okay? So now we have a second mechanism. In the first case, the first way of reaching this Khalifa is going to be the majority of the people getting together or the important people getting together and voting or deciding however you want to call it and giving their allegiance, their bay'ah to someone. And then that becomes their Khalifa. That's one version. And then you fast forward two and a half years, and then there's another version of how you reach Khilafah, which is basically the previous Khalifa just appoints you. So Abu Bakr simply appointed Umar. He did not consult anyone else. He just decided that, you know what, we're just going to appoint Umar ibn al-Khattab as the Khalifa over the Islamic world. Umar ibn al-Khattab rules for about 10 years. And then there was an assassination attempt. They tried to kill him. He knows that he was about to die. So in this case, he decided, he did not say, we are going to go with the majority and do a vote, like it happened at the time of Abu Bakr. He did not say, I'm going to appoint who's going to be my Khalifa right after me, although he, he did allude to that, but the people he was in, really interested in had just died. Two of them had died. So he decided that he was going to put a committee in place. A committee made up of six people. And those six people, he said, those are people that the Holy Prophet would be pleased with them. So I put them together, I brought them together, and he forced them, those six people, to sit inside a house, and he assigned, you know, about 50, according to some historians, about 50 soldiers to stand on the side. And those people were not allowed to leave that house, they were allowed to stay in there for three days. They had three days to come up with the name of the next Khalifa, and it had to be one of them, those six. Okay, so he chose who those six were. He put them in a house. He locked them up. No one was allowed to leave. If they tried to leave before the Khalifa was chosen, they would be killed. Okay, and then they would put in that house for three days to decide who would be the next Khalifa. And those people were Talha and Zubair, and Uthman ibn Affan, Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi salam, uh, Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Okay, so those are six people who were considered extremely influential. They were considered leaders. And all of them had aspirations, were known to have aspirations, and could have been the Khalifa. And what did Umar say? He said, these are his clear instructions, very well known. Go back to the books of history and you will see this. He said, now there are six people. You have three days. If anyone leaves, you kill them before you reach the conclusion. If all six of them agree on someone, then so be it. That's easy. If five of them agree on one person and one person disagrees, then kill that person. If four of them agree on one person and two disagree, then kill those two. If three agree and three disagree, then you have to look on which side was Abdul Rahman ibn Auf. If he happens to be on this side, then 
they get to choose, and those three are to be, the other three are to be killed. Okay? And then after that, he also asked his son, Abdullah ibn Umar, he told him, go join them and make sure that you, that you are on whichever side Abdurrahman ibn Auf is going to be. So he was not officially one of the six, but he was asked to take a position that will match that of Abdurrahman ibn Auf. And at the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab, and as he was leaving this world, this is the mechanism that he put in place to choose the next Khalifa. Okay, so what we have first is, right after the passing away of the Holy Prophet, the majority of the people chose, voted for Abu Bakr. So it's said. And then Abu Bakr appoints someone. That's a second mechanism. The, the previous Khalifa simply appointing someone after them. That's a second mechanism. A third mechanism is now the Khalifa creating a committee and saying, you know, all the details that we have said. And that's how a Khalifa can be chosen. What if we fast forward? So, of course, the two names that were left in the end for these six people is Uthman ibn Affan and Imam Ali salam. They came to Imam Ali and they told him, we are going to pay allegiance to you as the Khalifa of the Muslimin if you are going to rule in accordance with the Book of Allah and the tradition of the Holy Prophet and follow in the footsteps and, you know, basically the tradition of the two sheikhs before you, the two Khalifa before you, Abu Bakr and Umar. Imam Ali السلام, said, I will uh, rule in accordance with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and walk in the sunnah of the Holy Prophet, but no to the last condition, which is and uh, the tradition of the two sheikhs, the two khulafa. I will rule based on my own opinions. And based on this, they went to Uthman ibn Affan and they told him, we will pay allegiance to you as the Khalifa of the Muslimin based on all the three conditions. And he said yes to all three conditions. And that's why Uthman ibn Affan was chosen as the Khalifa of the Muslimin. And he was to rule uh, the Islamic world for the next about 12 years. Okay. So what happens then? So Umar ibn al-Khattab passes away. Uthman rules for about 12 years. And at the end, there was so much corruption and so many problems and uh, you know, how many family members that he had introduced and just corruption in his government and, 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 and that people revolted against him and killed him. And he was assassinated as well. So he is assassinated without appointing anyone afterwards. The people come to Imam Ali alayhi salam and almost force him to take the Khilafah. So Imam Ali alayhi salam becomes the Khalifa. And then at the same time, the one fighting Imam Ali for Khilafah is Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. So Muawiyah for the next five years, he works with the Khawarij at the end and Muawiyah and the Khawarij conspire together and they get rid of, they assassinate Imam Ali alayhi salam and basically Imam uh, Muawiyah by force takes the Khilafah. So people who have studied Islamic history are going to say based on the Sunni school, these are all, you know what I said, there are different theories of understanding how Islamic rule is supposed to work and how people are supposed to rule in Islam. So now you have the majority voting for Abu Bakr. You have a Khalifa appointing the Khalifa after him in the case of Umar being appointed by Abu Bakr. You have a committee being put in place and they get to choose. And that's what happened with Uthman. 
you have Imam Ali alayhi salam who was actually chosen by a real vote from the people who basically came to him and said we're fed up of all the injustice and all the corruption you need to become the Khalifa and then he was assassinated and by force Muawiyah became the Khalifa that's if we look at the early history of Islam so which one of these is supposed to be the correct Islamic theory for how you're supposed to rule who is supposed to rule and how are you supposed to get in power in Islam? This is the Sunni school of thought. And of course, there are those who say there is no prescribed rule. There is no prescribed theory for how you're supposed to rule in Islam. Anything goes. Whatever works, works. So whether you take it by force like Muawiyah did, and of course, if you look at the rest of Islamic history and what happened with Bani Umayyah and then Bani al-Abbas and then al-Uthmaniyin and so on and so forth, you see that this is what repeated itself. Everybody basically assassinating and doing coups and beating their parents or beating their family members to the throne and remaining in there and the assassinations and all of that. So basically anything goes. That's one theory or the other theories that were presented very, very early in, in Islam. Those are presented as, you know, the official way of ruling in Islam. And of course, anyone who looks at this would say that this is extremely problematic. Where is the legitimacy coming from for all these people to rule? When Abu Bakr, for instance, when Abu Bakr decides who the Khalifa is going to be after him, in what capacity is he deciding? What makes it legitimate for him what makes it valid for him to choose who the next Khalifa is? And what makes it legitimate for Umar to choose those six people to decide who the Khalifa is going to be? And to put this mechanism in place? Or what makes it legitimate for Muawiyah to take over the Khilafah by force and by assassinations, for instance? Where does it come from? Where does the legitimacy, even if we said, you know, the majority get together, where does the legitimacy come from? Do people just decide by themselves? That's one issue. There's a lot more issues. Another issue is, if we look at the manner in which the Holy Prophet conducted himself during his life, and the claim that he left this world without leaving anyone in charge after him, are we really saying that these people, so people like, let's say, Abu Bakr and Omar, for instance, they were more concerned with the fate of the Islamic world than the Holy Prophet, they could not leave. Abu Bakr could not leave this world without appointing a Khalifa after him. Umar could not leave this world without making sure that those people are going to choose a Khalifa from among those six after him. So if that is the case, then are we saying that people like Abu Bakr and Umar were more concerned about Islam and the Muslim community than the Holy Prophet? who just left this world and said, you guys are good, you can, I've given you everything you need, you can sort it out by yourselves. So why didn't Abu Bakr do the same thing? Why didn't Umar do the same thing? Were they more concerned about Islam and the Muslim world than the Holy Prophet himself? And then if we look at the conduct of the Holy Prophet during his life, every time the Holy Prophet would send a group of people, let's say he would tell them, if you are three well-known uh, narrations from the Holy Prophet, he tells them if there are three people praying together, one of them should be an Imam. If people are traveling, they need a leader. If I leave the city of Medina, for instance, every time he would leave, he would appoint someone as his successor the time he was away. Okay, why did he do that? This is the importance of leadership in Islam. 
that wherever there is a group of people, it has to be very clear who the leader is so that they can work together under one direction, towards one orientation, with one plan. There are people who need to step up or people who are recognized by the others are, as having the characteristics required to step up, to become the leader and the others follow them and they respect them. This is just human nature and the Holy Prophet putting direction around that and orientation around that. So this applies everywhere in Islamic teachings, except when it comes to the rule of Islam. Is it possible that we say this is where the exception is and the Holy Prophet left this world without appointing anyone after him? Okay? And then if we add to, the, to all of this, the fact that the Holy Prophet warned again and again and again that after him, after his passing away and leaving this world, there is going to be a lot of discord and disobedience against Islam, and rejection of the teachings of the Holy Prophet, and people who are going to flip in the words of the Prophet and in the, even the words of the Holy Quran. So it's someone who basically is reverts, say something, someone who goes uh, against everything that they were supposed to believe in. And the Holy Prophet would say, would tell them, and he would say, I'm going to come on the day of judgment, and I will be told that these are your companions. You don't know what they did after you left this world. Okay, and there are many, many narrations about this. So the Holy Prophet was already giving all the signs and explaining to everyone, prophesizing very clearly that there is going to be so much disunity and disagreement in his, while he was still alive. Explaining that this is going to happen as soon as he leaves this world. Is it possible to still think after all of this and so he would leave this world without appointing anyone after him and saying, so in case of disunity, go towards so-and-so. This is the person, or this is the mechanism that I put in place so that this discord and disunity does not amount to anything important or, you know, something serious. That there's always a way for you to reach the truth again. It doesn't make any sense, and there are too many inconsistencies and problems with all of this. Okay? So, keeping all of this in mind, what do the Shia actually believe? Now we understand the Sunni belief. And as we said, we understand somewhat the Shia belief, but we said this is not really the Shia belief, that the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali salam when he left this world. This is not what the Shia believe. It's not that the Holy Prophet basically looked around and he said, you know, this is the person who is most qualified to rule after me, so I'm going to choose him. That, that's how it's presented. So what is the actual Shia belief? The actual Shia belief is not that the Holy Prophet chose a person who happened to be Imam Ali to rule after him. The Shia belief is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appointed Imam Ali as an Imam after the passing away of the Holy Prophet. These are two very different notions. In one notion, we're saying the Holy Prophet, just like the Holy Prophet would look at his companions and say, you three, you're traveling, so-and-so should be your leader while you travel. Okay? That's a different thing than saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen an imam for this world. And he has instructed and commanded the Holy Prophet to explain that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen someone as an imam for this world. And so when the Holy Prophet says Imam Ali salam is my Khalifa and my Imam and the, word, the person who is going to succeed 
to me after I leave this world, it's not the Holy Prophet choosing Imam Ali. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who chose him and who appointed him, and the Holy Prophet is simply communicating the message to the Islamic world. These are two very completely different notions. In one case, the Holy Prophet is the one deciding. And this is how you can spin it into, well, of course, because he's also from Bani Hashem, and he is his son-in-law, and he is his cousin, and so on and so forth. Okay? And in the other case, you say, no, this is a divine appointment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the person who chose Imam Ali alayhi salam as an imam and also as a successor to the Holy Prophet. Now let, let's link all of this topic to the topic that we presented when we talked about the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu the link between this topic and the finality and the universality of Islam. We said that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants this religion to remain in place until the end of times, then you need people who are able to guide this religion into eternity. The teachings of the Holy Prophet, as we said, the teachings contained in the Holy Quran, and the teachings of the Holy Prophet to clarify what is in the Quran, have to remain in place until the end of times. And this is the key. And inshallah, we're going to explain that in a second. So there's a link here between what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place as a system of guidance to humanity and to ensure that that system remains in place until the end of times. And this is why, where we start understanding that if you believe in this notion of imamah, it's not that you believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has appointed someone as a political leader. It's not about political leadership. It's not about who is Khalifa in the political sense. It has to do with what do you believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place for you as a guiding system until the end of times. And that's why when the Shia discuss the topic of imamah, they don't look at it as an article of fiqh. They don't look at, look at it as a hukum, as they say, as a secondary thing. They look at it as an article of faith. This is part of your belief system. What do you believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place in terms of a guidance system for you? And so just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you guidance through the prophets, if you remember correctly and everything that we explained, and we're going to come back to that in a second, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has also given you access to this guidance and ensured that you remain uh, within reach of that guidance through the system of imamah. This is why the system of imamah becomes necessary. It's if you believe that this is the system, Islam is the system that is going to allow you to remain guided until the end of times, that you are going to have access to the truth for all of eternity, then you are going to have a need for something more than what the Holy Prophet has given you. And we're going to explain that in a second. And that's why the Shia actually believe that whatever we said about the prophets is also going to apply to the Imams. So the Imam has to be someone that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appoints, cannot be appointed in any other way, just like a prophet is appointed by Allah. It has to be someone who is going to have a divine knowledge so they have access to 
absolute truths coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not like they're conjecturing and they're hypothesizing and coming up with their own uh, uh, you know, answers to problems and questions that may or may not be right or wrong. No, no, they have access to the truth. They have access to divine knowledge. Their knowledge is divine, just like the knowledge of a prophet is divine. Otherwise, they cannot be trusted with religion. You might think they might make a mistake here. And finally, they have to be infallible. So infallible not only in their knowledge, but also in their actions. Because these people represent all of religion. And if these people are representing religion, then people will look up to them and say, if this person is making a mistake here, whether intentionally or unintentionally, then this is going to reflect badly on the religion itself. Maybe their teachings of the religion are wrong as well. So why do we talk about a necessity of the imam? We said, to summarize, to make it clear, we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided humanity through revelation. Because human beings do not have access to certain types of truth based on the tools that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us reason. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the five senses. And with this and intuition and our nature, and with this we're supposed to explore the world. But how am I supposed to know what happens after I die? And how am I supposed to know what kind of prayer I'm supposed to do? How am I supposed to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exactly? So this is the stuff that a human being cannot reach by themselves on their own just with reason. They need another special type of guidance, another source of knowledge, and this is revelation. And it comes to them, to those human beings, because of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wisdom, as we explained when we talked about God and his attributes and prophethood, we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acts with purpose. The purpose of human beings is that they are guided, that they are given everything they need so that they can live their lives in the best possible way, in a way that is also balanced, that has uh, a balancing not only at the religious and spiritual aspect, but also on the, all the other dimensions of life. And that's why the prophets are sent with all of the teachings required so that you balance all of your needs as an individual with the needs of society and all your own internal needs, the needs of your body, the needs of your mind, the needs of your soul, the needs of your psychology, and so on and so forth. All of these are balanced in a perfect way with the system that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you that is called religion. Okay? Now, when we talked about the Holy Prophet, we also said that when Islam came, it also clearly presented itself as a universal religion and as an eternal religion. So this is a religion that will be in application, in effect, until the end of times and for all of humanity to follow. Which means that it needs to be a religion that has an answer, that has a position about everything that is important in the life of a human being. And Muslims believe and this is what Islam said from the beginning, that all of its teachings are contained in this book, in the holy book of Islam, this miraculous book called the Quran. All of the teachings are contained in it. Everybody agrees on this. The issue is that the teachings are not contained in it in a most explicit way all the time. The holy Quran is not going to explain to you, for instance, how you're supposed to perform your prayer. It's just going to say you have to pray, and perhaps it's going to mention some of the times of the prayer. But the details of this are going to come from the Holy Prophet himself. 
who is therefore as much, if not more, of a religious authority than the Holy Quran while, he's, while he exists. Same thing with the Imams, as we're going to see. Okay, While they are in existence, while we have access to them, they are the main source of knowledge. Because I don't know how to interpret the Holy Quran without them. They are the ones who are going to tell me how to apply the verses of the Quran. The Holy Prophet is going to show me how I'm supposed to perform my pilgrimage or how I'm supposed to fast or how I'm supposed to pray. Yes, the, the general lines are explained in the Quran, but not the specifics. The specifics have to come from the concrete daily application that I see from the Holy Prophet. Okay, and if you go to the Holy Quran, this is very clear. In one verse after another, the Holy Quran tells us, for instance, uh, in one of the verses, if, if there's many of them here, we have sent down the reminder to you, the dhikr to you, O Holy Prophet, so that you may clarify for the people that which has been sent down to them. Your job is to clarify and to apply this religion so that people understand what's contained in this Holy Quran. Okay, so keeping all of this in mind, now let's go back to the topic of Imam. Now, if we look at the manner in which the Holy Prophet lived, the Holy Prophet, when he began his mission, there was a time that historians disagree about between three and five years. Let's say three, okay? Let's keep it minimal. The first three years in the life of the Holy Prophet, when he, was, when he had began his prophetic mission. So let's say from the time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first announced to him that he's a prophet, that he needs to start inviting some people to Islam. This was called a secret mission. Why? Because the Holy Prophet was not asked to invite more than the people who are immediately close to him. And this is when Imam Ali السلام, and then Khadija al-Kubra believed and had faith and accepted Islam. Those were the only people at first. And then others started coming into Islam and it was all in secret. And this lasted for about three years and possibly up to five. Then after that, the Holy Prophet started preaching to those who were very close to him, his family members. And so he went to Bani Hashim, and then he slowly expanded to Quraysh, and then he started to send his mission to the rest of the world and invite more than those people to the rest of the world. While he was in Mecca, okay, so imagine those years of secret preaching take place, and then after that, and we've explained this in the past, the Holy Prophet goes through this very, very difficult time. The Muslims are under, there's torture and duress. Some of them are leaving to go to uh, Al-Habasha and elsewhere because they couldn't live anymore because of all the uh, abuse and all the uh, transgressions against them, the oppression against them because they're a minority and Quraysh is against them. And so they went and they hid for three years in a valley between two mountains called Sha'ab, uh, uh, Abi Talib, and they lived in there, and we are told of the extreme difficulty that they had to undergo when they lived there. They would look for leaves of trees to eat, and it, history tells us that multiple men, many men, numerous men, would share a single date over days, over two, three, four days. They only had one date to eat, all of them together, so they would split it and they would eat it. Okay, that's the difficulty that they endured for three more years. So three to five years of a secret mission. Three years living in uh, Shu'ab Abi Talib. And this is, you know, the same year that uh, uh, Abu Talib passes away and Khadija passes away. The persecution continues. They try to assassinate the Holy Prophet. Finally, he leaves the city of Mecca and he goes to the city of Medina. And then 
once he is after this hijrah towards the city of Medina, there are battles that take place one after the other. 80 some battles, 82, 83, 84 battles take place during that time until the passing away of the Holy Prophet. And altogether, this is about 23 years of his prophetic mission. So I think anyone who looks at this would not think that the Holy Prophet just sat there for 23 years and explained every detail of his uh, religion and these teachings where he's trying to completely reform, uproot and reform an entire culture and society. To prepare them, to make them ready to carry a universal message and an eternal message to mankind. These were the conditions with which the Holy Prophet was working. So of course there, there are things that today, when we look at the manner in which the Holy Prophet lived and the difficulties that he was encountering, we know that it would have been impossible for him to teach everything that this religion has to teach to humanity. The conditions were just not there. And even when he taught, his companions were not always mature enough or in a situation that allowed them to capture and understand all the nuances of his teachings or to be able to collect those and to compile them and to make them reach the rest of humanity so that they become the best people to spread all of this to others, for instance. Okay, so when you look at all of this, you see that there are a lot, a lot of issues with the teachings of the Holy Prophet being transmitted to the rest of the world. And this is not a shortcoming on the side of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Quran says that he worked tirelessly day and night in order to try to preach, to get this message to reach humanity. The Holy Quran tells him, you're trying to, are you trying to destroy or kill yourself in trying to guide those people? This is the amount of effort that the Holy Prophet put in. This is not a shortcoming on the, on the side of the Holy Prophet. It's that the circumstances in which he was working would not allow him to teach everything this religion in its full depth has to bring to humanity. And if you take something as simple as wudu, today, 14 centuries later, and in fact, for all the centuries before, Muslims do not agree on how the Holy Prophet performed his wudu. Sometimes you might think, okay, there's a reason for people to distort, to hide the truth or to change the truth, right? Because there's money involved, because there's power involved, because there is a reputation involved, because there's something going on that makes someone decide to change something or to hide something or to add something. Okay, but what if we look at wudu? This is something that the Holy Prophet would have performed every single day in public in front of people, multiple times a day. Something for which, about which there is no association with money or power or reputation. No one would have any reason. No one should have any reason to create distortions or to play around with history or to hide the truth about wudu. And yet, if we look throughout Islamic history, we see that there is no consensus about the manner in which the Holy Prophet was performing his wudu. You go back to the time of the Imams. And the people would come to the Imam and they would ask the Imam, teach me how to perform my wudu. This is the early centuries of Islam, not 14 centuries later. So the argument that the Holy Prophet left a perfect religion to be transmitted to everyone afterwards does not work. If you read Mawsu'at al-Ghadir of Sheikh al-Amini, he has at some point in volume 5, he, for 80 pages, he lists names of 700 people who are narrators of ahadith. And though some of those people, they have narrated more than 100,000 hadith. 
and those 700 are known by Islamic Muslim scholars to be liars, to be people who have intentionally lied about the Sunnah of the Holy Prophet. So someone to come afterwards and say, the Holy Prophet left Islam in a perfect state and in a complete state for people to take all of this and just apply it in their lives does not work. And everybody who studies Islam knows that this does not work. So what is the alternative? If Islam is truly universal, if Islam is truly eternal for all of humanity to follow, and yet this is the state of Islam, where we are completely lost and we don't know how to go back to the truth, what do we do? What happens after the Holy Prophet passes away? And we heard the Sunni response, the Shia response to all of this, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose for this religion, He chose Imams. He chose to complete the cycle of prophethood with a cycle of Imamah. And those Imams are going to play the same role as the Holy Prophet performed, so that they would carry this message and continue to apply the religion as the Holy Prophet did, so that even though the Holy Prophet did everything he could during his time, you would have 12 Imams continuing to teach the Islamic world and therefore the rest of humanity, continuing to teach Islam and to apply Islam day in and day out, showing people, depending on the circumstances that are happening, how Islam truly is and how it is applied and what is Islam's answer to this question and to that problem and to that social need or individual need, things that may not even have existed in the time of the Holy Prophet and the Imams put in place an entire network and a system and an infrastructure of principles and rules and manners to teach their followers how they are to understand the Holy Quran and how they are supposed to apply the principles of this religion so that they can take them and apply them to anything that they may ever encounter later in life until the end of times. And this is the difference between the Sunni theory and the Shia theory about what happens when the Holy Prophet passes away. And this is what the Shia mean when they say that the Imam is necessary. Because this religion could not have been a religion that is truly universal and eternal, knowing what we know about how Islam was not really transmitted and that it was distorted and that was kind of incomplete because of everything that happened early in Islam. Islam could not be universal and eternal because it's not being acquired, it's not reaching the people as it's supposed to, unless you have a safeguard, unless you have someone who represents this religion, and who represents this religion in a perfect and complete way, just like the Holy Prophet did. Otherwise, you can't rely on those people. They might be really good people, they might be, you know, uh, people who are working really hard, like a scholar, but that's very different from saying you have someone who is infallible, who is divinely appointed, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in place to ensure that this religion remains intact and that its truths can reach the maximum amount of people and remains in effect until the end of times. And this is what we understand by the notion of an imam. Okay? And so, the Holy Prophet, we said, was protected by revelation. This is what... When, when, who said that? When we said that the Shia believe that 
their imam is someone who is infallible. Someone who truly represents religion. Someone who is who has access to divine knowledge. A lot of people are going to say, okay, that makes sense. The question is, <clears throat> the question is, you know when there are claims, you know when we studied religion, when we studied prophethood, we said we want to be able to eliminate because there might be too many claims. We can't spend time studying everyone. So this claim that there is someone who says openly, I represent religion, I represent God on earth, I am infallible, I have divine knowledge, you can ask me about anything and I will tell you the truth, the absolute truth about it. I am equivalent to the Holy Quran. I am the interpretation of the Holy Quran. Has anyone in the history of mankind, has anyone dared to say something like this except the Imams of Ahlul Bayt? No. And this is where, you know, as they say, the rubber <laughs> hits the road. This is where you see the truth. This is where you understand that the truth, this theory that the Shia believe in is not coming from nothing. It's that there are only very, very select few people who have ever dared to say those words. To have dared to say, I am infallible, I have access to divine knowledge, that I am appointed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to rule over you and for you to follow me. If we go to the other side, even the people who ended up becoming the rulers and who ended up becoming the people who were appointed as leaders in the Sunni world, what do they say about themselves? Do they make any such claims as the Imams of Ahlul Bayt have made or not? So this is where you see, for instance, when Abu Bakr, he was appointed as a leader when you know, people came to him and took the allegiance and he took to the pulpit of the Holy Prophet. He climbed the pulpit, the member of the Holy Prophet, and he started giving a speech. And he said, as for the Holy Prophet, he was protected by revelation. As for me, I have a devil that overcomes me from time to time. So if you see that I am upright, that I am, what I'm doing and what I'm saying is correct, then help me continue to be correct and support me in this. And if you, show, if you see that I'm transgressing, that I'm going in an incorrect way, saying incorrect things, that I'm mistaken, then rectify my path. Ah, so when Abu Bakr took over, he's openly saying, you know, as for me, I have a devil that overcomes me. Okay. So in other words, he is saying, I'm just a human being like you. There's nothing wrong with saying that. In fact, we could say how beautiful that your political leader can take to the pulpit and say, I make mistakes like everybody else. So if I'm doing the right thing, help me. And if I'm doing the wrong thing. But when you compare that to someone like Imam Ali salam, who basically tells you that he is infallible, that everything he does and he says is in complete satisfaction with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, then it makes a huge difference. If you had no one making that claim, and if you had no one who was going to say that I am the representative of God on earth, then this may work as an alternative. But when you have people, let's say when, when Umar became a Khalifa, he openly said the Khilafah of Abu Bakr was an improvised, improvised accident. And he says, 
Okay, the Khilafah of Abu Bakr and the manner in which it happened was a mistake. It was an improvised mistake. It was felta. It was something that should have never happened, but it happened. We're not sure how, but it happened. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala safeguarded and protected the believers from all the wrongs that could have ensued, all the bad consequences that could have happened, all the evils that could have happened from it. That's what he says. No one in there, even those who have been later appointed as the leaders, have ever claimed that they are infallible or what everything that they do is correct or that they represent God on earth. Every time these delegations of Jews and Christians and the Romans would come to the Islamic land and they would want to meet the Khalifa and argue so that they show publicly to the world that Islam is not a true religion. Okay, so this would happen all the time in the time of, of Umar. And every time this happened, Umar would send for Imam Ali السلام, to come and answer their questions. And their questions came from deep within their scriptures, things that had been passed on generation after generation. And no one knew the answer to these in the Islamic world. So they would go to Imam Ali السلام, who would answer them. And Umar would repeat those words, you know, لا أبقاني الله and so on and so forth. Were it not for Ali, Umar would have perished. May God protect me from a problem for which I do not have Abu Hassan, and so on and so forth. Okay, so do you see the difference between the claim? The claim on one side is, I'm just a person like you. I know some stuff. I don't know some stuff. I make mistakes here. I may not make mistakes there. So help me when you see me doing good, and help me when you see me doing bad. Whereas on the other side, you have the Imams who are telling you, I am the representative of God on earth. You want, to be, you want God to be pleased with you, then make sure that I am pleased with you. It's a completely different understanding of what the role of the Imam is. And if you look at the role of his, in history and what the Khulafa have done, I mean, this is just the beginning to talk about, you know, what Abu Bakr says, what Umar says, and so on and so forth. If you were to look at the other Khulafa, it does not even, you know, we don't even need to go, go into those details. So with this, inshallah, we have made clear the main argument for when we say that humanity requires, out of necessity, imamah. And we're not saying this in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to send an imam. We're saying that given the type of context that we had, that people were faced with, the circumstances of the time of the Holy Prophet that did not allow him to teach Islam fully for a group of people who could take it and keep it as is and, and uh, communicate it to the rest of the world, then it makes sense for us to say, and the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore chose to complement the cycle of the Holy Prophet with a cycle of Imam. It's in that sense. Otherwise, no one can impose on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have or not to have a cycle of Imam, for instance, as the exact same argument as we said for the prophethood. No one can impose on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're just saying that it makes sense for us when we look at all the circumstances now to say, this is how we can ensure that the guidance is complete to humanity that the guidance reaches the maximum amount of people so that with time and in time, there is enough truth out there for enough people to be guided and until the end of times, okay? Now, I don't want to take too long, but there were two quick questions that I received. So I wanted to answer them. The first question is really not relevant to the topic, uh, but it's something that was raised 
uh, based on something that we've discussed in the past, and this is the topic of reason. So just to be clear, the relationship between reason and faith, and knowledge, reason, and faith, does reason change based on our worldview or not? Reason, when we have used the term, we've used it in two ways. We said there's a true reason. Reason is basically your faculty, your ability to discern, to judge, to use logic. And it doesn't change from one human being to another, from one culture to another, from one time to another. Reason is reason. A rational argument is a rational argument. It doesn't change. It's always going to remain valid and the same, and that does not change. Okay? So this part, inshallah, this is clear. Now, what about a worldview? A worldview is basically how you, what you have put in place to understand the world and your place in it and how you experience it. So this, of course, changes. Now, we may have said in certain lectures, it seems that we're saying that reason is changing. Reason does not change. What we were saying is that there are people who present, who distort the meaning, and who say, for instance, reason, what, when, when, when what they really mean is natural science. So they say, for instance, someone is not using rational arguments, not using reason, when the truth is they are using reason, but they may not be relying on natural science. And we, I think, explained in enough detail and in depth that natural science is not equal to reason. These are two completely different things. Natural science is natural science. This is what humanity has been able to discover about the natural world with their senses and with their reason. And it may change tomorrow and it may not change tomorrow. This is open for experimentation. There is truth and there is falsehood in it. And it's always evolving and developing. This is different from reason, which is just logic in itself. Reason is not going to change. Reason is the laws of logic that all human minds are going to agree upon. Okay? So reason is reason. So be careful. That's what we were trying to say. Be careful from those who are trying to use natural science and say, if you disagree with my theory of natural science, for instance, how the universe began or how evolution happened or, 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 if you disagree with this, then you are not following reason, that you are not being rational. Those two are two completely different things. That's what we are trying to say. This is in short, and inshallah, it's clear. If it's not, we can explain it more. I just don't have time before the salah. The second question we received was that uh, in the last week, we mentioned some verses of the Quran that talk about the notion of imamah. And of course, those need to be explained in detail. Okay, and we did not explain them. We simply read the verses. One of those verses says basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and we have made them into an imams. We have made them into imams. We who guide based on our command, when when they had shown patience and knowledge and when they had certainty about our signs okay so it's a combination of patience to enduring calamities and difficulties combined with an extreme form of knowledge raw knowledge 
pure absolute knowledge that is of the divine world. Okay, this is what allows someone to become an imam. Can someone object to these verses and say, this verse is talking more about people, let's say an imam of a mosque or an imam of a group, just a leader in general, and not the divine sense of imam. The short answer is no, they cannot. This is not a proper use of the word, of the, of the uh, verses of the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is himself saying, we have made them, وَجَعَلْنَاهُمْ جَعَلْنَاهُمْ is a key here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made someone into an imam. This is not the people who have decided, or I have decided to become an imam, or the people chose me as an imam. This is the people that Allah has chosen as imams. And that's why the verse is talking about prophets in this case. Okay? In, like if you read the verses before and after, you see it's talking about people from among whom they were prophets, and from among them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and we have made them imams. We have made them imams. That's one. Two, if you look at reality, look at reality. Look at how things unfold on a daily basis. People who have actually become leaders of groups, even in the Islamic sense, political leaders, leaders of a mosque, leader of a prayer, do you think that each and every one of them is truly infallible? Can anyone dare say that? Even themselves, would anyone dare say I'm infallible? And that I have reached the status of imamah because of my patience and because what if this person was, is not patient, has never gone through any difficulties of life? What if they really don't know that much? And yet they are still an imam of a group, a group appointed them as their imam. And the verse is saying, if you are becoming an imam, it's because of your patience and your knowledge. Well, that's why you see that. No, no, so the verse is not talking about these imams in daily life, the people that we encounter. The verse is talking about people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen for the divine role of imamah. And those are the people that he chose based on those two main criteria which is their patience and their ability to endure difficulties and calamities, one, and two, their level of certitude or certainty, this yaqeen that they have with regards to the signs of Allah, to the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inshallah, this was clear and, you know, it's uh, prayer time. So keep me in your prayers, inshallah, and I shall keep you in mind. And we talk soon, inshallah, and we'll continue the topic of imamah. And next, we are going to present the uh, the manner in which this imam is established and their main characteristics. So we're going to talk about the appointment of the imam and followed by that, we're going to present the two main characteristics of the imam that we talked about today, which were the infallibility and the knowledge of an imam.